sin in nature's night. When I diffuse a quickening ray, I woke. That's a beautiful song to sing, to think of what Jesus Christ did. That God shed his love for us. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy. As we get back to our study, 1 Timothy. In chapter 6, we broach this subject of chapter 6, verse 1 through 10 on our Palm Sunday. And I took a slightly different uh, angle on it uh, with it being Palm Sunday. If you recall, we took the primary phrase of not loving money. The love of money is root of all kinds of evil and illustrated that in the events of Holy Week. Argued that much of the direct reason why Jesus was put on the cross was because of a love of money. Showed you various passages that spoke to that. And that Jesus died for the love of money that we might love God. And so... I want to go back to that same text, 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 10. There's quite a bit I just really didn't pay attention to, uh, just to bring out that one phrase of the love of money. And so I want to uh, bring further attention to what is there in the text in chapter 6, 1 through 10. And to give us some dangers. If you remember the the book, the point of the, the letter that Paul is writing to Timothy in Ephesus is that we might know how to behave. Uh, in God's church, in God's, God's assembly, his family, the place where the living God is active and working, a pillar and buttress of truth for the community, for the world. And so for Green Pines to be the type of community that reflects God's family, to be the type of community that shows that we believe there is a living God, and he is working among us. To be the type of community where the whole community or the whole area of Nightdale, East Raleigh, and the world is blessed by truth. To be the type of community that lifts up truth, the truth of Jesus Christ. Then we need to pay attention to what this book is saying. And as such, as we come to chapter 6, he says there are some dangers. There are some desires that are in our, in our midst that if we don't pay attention can undermine who we are as God's family. And so I want to bring attention uh, to uh, a few of those desires, dangers, uh, that uh, really maybe not doesn't strike us as those desires, if you will. It's kind of like going out to the ocean, to the beach, uh, when you've got those signs and those flags up where it says yellow to red, and when you see those yellow and red, then you know that there are possibly dangerous undercurrents possibly dangerous conditions, and when you have that red flag out, don't go swimming in uh, that, that situation. And so oceans are not bad, but if you know what the desires are and how the, the tides can work to drown you, then we need to be uh, paying attention to that. And so these things that I mentioned to you are not bad in of, of themselves, but can lead to dangerous, deadly uh, outcomes if you're not aware. And so 
1 Timothy 6, 1 through 10, we're going to look at four of these desires that we have to be on guard against. Uh, And so as we read this together, let's stand uh, in honor of this being God's word. 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 10. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and to a snare and to many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. You may be seated. As we were in chapter 5, we saw in chapter 5 that there are several segments that Paul is encouraging honor toward. We saw that, first of all, he was uh, teaching the church to honor widows, and he qualified the type of widows that are to be cared for uh, in a church body. And that we saw that in that honoring, it certainly had financial implications of what we're to do. And then he talked about those who are elders who rule well, and especially in the teaching of God's word, that there is to be double honor uh, concerning them. And we talked about the financial implications of what that means. Uh, and then we come to chapter 6, and we see this phrase again of worthy of honor. And But now he takes it to a, a situation that we may find somewhat uncomfortable uh, when he talks about slaves and masters and slaves honoring their masters. And notice it says in verse 1 that uh, slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. And in verse 1, he's speaking very generally. Any situation of a slave with a master. Now we read this and we think, well, here's the, the discomfort we feel. This is Paul writing to a believer. And then we wonder, Paul, why don't you, why don't you instead teach Timothy... To reject slavery altogether. I mean, that's what we understand today as a Christian principle, Christian understanding. Slavery is wrong. Okay? And so we're kind of uncomfortable in that Paul doesn't seem to bring that up. Why aren't you teaching prohibition against slavery? Instead, he is teaching uh, slaves how to conduct themselves and to give honor to their master. And so let me give you a little bit of context here. First of all, I don't, I don't think it's right to view this slavery and what we knew as in America, of the ethnic slavery that was filled with a, of various types of abuse. 
that this slavery that was being talked about in the, in the time of Rome was not ethnic, but was economic and was political conditions. It was where people would take over a country and they subject the, those people into slaves or where people them, uh, subject themselves because of economic conditions to work as a slave to a master. In fact, uh, when you look at the, the, the time of Rome, uh, there were over 60 million slaves in that society. In fact, half the population of the empire was probably slaves. And, it, and the best way of understanding it today may not be the idea of slave and master as much as it is employer-employee. There might be a lot more implications for us to look at this and say uh, to, to change the word from slaves to employee and master as employer those who are under yoke as employees regard their employers as worthy of all honors that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. I think there's a lot of implications when you look at it like that uh, uh, that applies to our, our understanding. But there is something to be said in that Paul does not, at this point, give these prohibitions against slavery. In fact, Paul doesn't seem to be overly concerned about it at all. He just says, you know what? You guys, if you're in a, a slave situation... You honor God by how you treat your master. We see other passages in Ephesians 6 that talks about how masters are treat and a slave. And instead of giving these prohibitions against slavery, he said, instead, through the gospel, inject seeds of truth that will ultimately undermine slavery. Things like, we are all created by God, and as such, we are all subject to God and that we are equal before God. Uh, we see things like that and that uh, because of the gospel and because of the blood of Christ, we are now one together. And, and we find that there is such a, a seed that undermines the whole fabric of slavery. And so Paul doesn't have to go into these direct prohibitions, uh, master free your sleeve, slaves and, and slaves rebel against your masters. Instead, he doesn't seem to be concerned about that. He's not really overly concerned about individual rights in general. Which is kind of unsettling for us as Americans who are very much concerned about individual rights. In fact, he doesn't tell the slave to rebel against their master. Just instead regard their masters as worthy of all honor. Regardless, he doesn't give any conditions on this, whether or not this is a good master or not. He says, just treat them as worthy of all, all honor. And then in verse 2, he, he goes from a general condition to specific. He talks about believing masters. So those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. And so uh, the idea here is that now we are one in the faith. Uh, you, you as my master, you are my brother in Christ, and you as my slave, you are my brother in Christ. There is this temptation to say, okay, now we're going to pretend like none of this exists, and you're just my brother. And, and, and with that comes this possibility of disrespect. He said, instead, don't be disrespectful on the ground that you're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved in other words, treat your master well. Do good in your job. Do good in your work ethic because it benefits them. And if they're benefit as a brother in Christ, then this gives them more grounds or for more influence for the kingdom of the Lord. 
And so what I want you to understand in all this, as he talks about how you're to treat your employer or treat your master, he's not talking about individual rights. He seems to be talking more about responsibility. So let me just bring this word of warning. Beware of loving our individual rights. Beware of loving our individual rights. Here's the thing. A believer now is the one in the faith with his boss, his employer, his master, and he could say, you know what? You don't tell me what to do anymore. We are brothers together. We have one master. We have God as our father. You no longer have the right to do that. You can't tell me to do that. And he can make a good theological argument as to why this human shouldn't be their master. But Paul doesn't go there. Because he says, if you stand up and fight for this individual right and you rebel against this one as as your master, if you go there, what will be the cost? You notice, what is the reason in verse 1 as to why we're to regard a master as worthy of honor? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. You're under a yoke? Fine. Treat your master with honor. Don't be so concerned about your individual rights. Be more concerned about the gospel's reputation. Be more concerned about the name of God. Every once in a while, you'll find that your fight for individual rights and the name of God sometimes cannot be done at the same time. We were working in Dearborn, and there were those there that were protesting because they didn't want any hint of Muslim law, Sharia law, to be a part of American law. And I am totally sympathetic with that. I agree. We're not to be based on Sharia law. But in advocating that and protesting that, it was done in such a way where lawsuits were being made against Muslims to try to defend this right. But they were believers. These ones that were fighting and champion American rights. They were believers. And here's the problem. These were starting to be the face of Christ to Arabs in Dearborn. They were Christians. And so when someone thought of a Christian, they thought of these people. And when they see these people, instead of demonstrating any kind of love of Christ, they were instead seeing someone fighting for their rights to the point of suing people. Do you see the disconnect? I'm totally sympathetic with America's judicial system not to be impacted by Sharia law, by Muslim law. But when it's all said and done, I am not to be honoring American judicial system 
more than I'm honoring the name of God. When it comes time to this situation where he's talking about a master and a slave, he says, it's not an issue of your individual rights. It's about the name of Christ. Do not dishonor the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let me just bring another implication as we read verse 2. Those who have believed masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Uh, And so sometimes we can have this, this... Unique treatment because we are brothers in Christ or sisters in Christ. And and now let me just say that this also applies from the boss to the employee. Just because an employee is a brother and sister in Christ, but they have a lousy work ethic and they're lazy, they should not be promoted just because they're a brother and sister in Christ. It goes both ways, doesn't it? It is about your work showing the worth of Christ. How does your work show the worth of Christ? Does it adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ or does it detract from the gospel of Jesus Christ? I remember uh, my my grandfather, he was a, a parolee officer. Uh, but was a, a believer, a follower of, of Jesus Christ. And before uh, he was really engaged in pro he was doing uh, prison ministry and working and, and preaching in prisons, And uh, from which my dad eventually started uh, teaching in that. But when he started working in the pro area, uh, well, the state uh, said to him, you know, you, you can't continue this prison ministry. In fact, you can't actively bring up Christ. If you're going to work as a parolee officer, because people are going to think that all you got to do then is become a Christian, and then, bam, you know, you, you've got some freedom now from prison. And so, Granddad asked some questions. Said, "Well, can I respond to people if they ask me?" Well, yeah, that'd be fine. So he prayed about it, and he said, "Okay, let's go. Let's do this." It wasn't an issue of his individual rights. It was just. I'm going to work hard, work well. He, he, and he shared with me, he said, it was amazing. When I prayed and I depended on the Lord to bring these opportunities, I had more people talking to me and I could share my faith more after that than when I was actively seeking it and trying to pursue it on my own. Why is that? Because it was how he lived his life. That evidently in that work environment, it adorned the gospel. Listen, work in such a way where people say, why do you work so hard? When everyone else doesn't work so hard, why do you do that? It's because of Jesus Christ that you are serving not the master, you're serving the Lord. And so it's no longer about your individual rights. Be careful, because in pursuit of your individual rights, perhaps what can be at stake is the name of Christ. Sometimes that can happen. And so he says, Paul is saying, don't pursue this, don't fight over your status and your rights. Just serve well the masters that are there. Let it be an adornment to the teaching of Christ. Now, as we keep on reading, we, he says, teach 
and urged these things. And I believe what's in question that he's urging and teaching and reemphasizing the things that we'll see here, verses 3 and following of, of what is the right doctrine. He says, keep bringing this to people's minds. And so that's why I don't have any problem whatsoever teaching 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 10 again. I'm commanded by Scripture to teach and urge these things. So what else does he say? Well, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Now, what I want to bring out here is not just making sure that you've got all the right details given about Jesus Christ, that, that he is God in the flesh, that he came and, and lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross, rose again, and ascended to be with the Father. It's not just the details of all that doctrine to make sure it agrees with Scripture, but it's also teaching that accords with godliness, teaching that has lifestyle complementing what is being taught under the authority of Jesus Christ. And so what you need to keep in mind that sound words and teaching is not just saying the right things in accordance with Scripture, but under the authority of Jesus Christ and lifestyle. And so he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine does not agree with sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching in accords with godliness. Notice verse 4. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So you could say another way he is conceited ignoramus. Puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. What we have to watch out for and, and as we read this, the, the key and, and, and this person reading this text or this person and this lifestyle is all about themselves. It's about their own reputation. Beware loving your own reputation. Beware loving our own reputation. Notice what this person is doing is that it, he's puffed up with conceit. It's about himself. And so what generates more attention to himself? He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. You know how you can instantly get recognition? Just tear someone else down. Just tear down their system, their teaching. You just tear them down and people start paying attention to you. What did you say about that person? And you start getting notoriety. People start wanting to read your blog. People start wanting to listen to what you have to say because now you're tearing someone down and you're creating this controversy and, 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 and uh, quarrel about words. And it, at the same time, you're building yourself up. People know your name. You're puffed up with conceit and understanding nothing when you love your own reputation. What do you sacrifice to get it? Which produce envy. Envy. When we're annoyed at other people's gains. When we love our own reputation, it irks us, it irritates us, it bugs us when people are invading upon our turf, our capital, with their own reputations, and envy comes out. This puffed up with conceit Unhealthy craving for controversy produces dissension, slander. Because of the envy in my heart, because it's about my reputation, how can I talk in such a way to tear someone down? And 
create sides. Really, you shouldn't be following that person because it hurts your reputation. Evil suspicions. This love of reputation puffed up with conceit, understanding, producing evil suspicions where all of a sudden you are on a warpath where we're looking for the faults in someone's life. Evil suspicions. Where can I find wrong in their life? When you're finding yourself down that road of where can I find wrong in their life, you are in a dangerous road. And at the root of it really is your own reputation, a love for your own reputation. And so consequently, verse 5, there is constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Anytime you see where there's strife going on and tension in a group, look at it. When you're involved in the group, ask yourself this question, how am I contributing to this? Ask. That is the question we ask ourselves. Anytime we see it around us, don't look at other people because you're doing the very thing problem that's the very problem looking at other people look at yourself and ask how am i contributing to this tension to this strife this dissension you probably will see a love for your own reputation somewhere involved in this now is reputation bad no reputation is a good thing it's inevitable There's going to be a reputation of some sort. I'm not saying that you should care less about your reputation. Reputation is a good thing. But a degree of loving your reputation is where you sacrifice truth, sacrifice the gospel, sacrifice Christ for your own reputation. Is individual rights, are they a bad thing? No. They're a good thing. God's granted them. But when you love them, what do you sacrifice to maintain individual rights. Often, it's the gospel. It's love. Now, we keep on reading. We find verse 5 as these describing this, this person. I think Paul's probably got some specific people in mind. He's awfully, awfully detailed in this. You don't just imagine these things. I think there's some, some folks in mind in Ephesus. Um, and then he says, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. The thing about this, it's kind of like uh, natural gas. Natural gas in your house is generally a good thing. All kinds of heating. Uh, we've got a gas fire we enjoy. Some of you have other types of cooking that requires heat and other uses. But we have a carbon monoxide detector in our house. Because gas, if leaked out, can have a slumbering, deadly effect. It makes you unconscious and ultimately kill you. These desires that I bring to you, are like natural gas. They can be good. But if you are not aware of the effect of it, 
If you don't have a spiritual detector in your life, it can kill you spiritually. And so I want to bring to your attention the third desire that is alluded to here in verse 5 and 6, this godliness, as imagine godliness as a means of gain. And that is beware of loving your own comfort. Beware of loving your own comfort. This, this gain, this has the idea of material gain. It is to say that we're in a better position. We're in a prosperous situation. We are in a more comfortable lifestyle. To know that, that believe that godliness is a means of comfort. And, and I share with you, this is very much the situation that Jesus found himself surrounded by with the religious uh, uh, ruling party of the day. That they saw their system of belief as a means for gain. And when Jesus started attacking the gain, they started attacking Jesus. And so I believe that godliness is a means of gain. That somehow by having a good, godly reputation, and that people come to me for teaching and influence, uh, regardless of what the spirit of it is, and that people now pay me for this, and that now I can get respect for this, that this is a dangerous thing to go down. And this is the, I'm going to just be honest, this is the danger of pastors. This is something we have to watch out for, to know this, and it can slumber and kill us and our spirit. Beware of loving our own comfort. Imagine that godliness is a means of gain. And then verse 6, he kind of qualifies that. He says, but you know, godliness is a means of gain with contentment. Godliness with contentment is a means of great gain. Now, what is contentment? It's not laziness. It's not selfishness. It's not complacency. It's, uh, it's uh, someone brought out, and some of you guys are, seem to be a fan of, of Winnie the Pooh. Uh, when, he, when he's in uh, the 100-acre wood, and uh, he's got a whole jar of, of honey, and he just polishes that thing off, and, and then it falls down next to a tree and, 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 and sleeps in a sticky, satisfying nap. All right? That's not the type of contentment we're talking about here, where... I've got everything I want. What else do I need to have ambition for? It's the idea that there there is no externals needed to have contentment and satisfaction in your life. It's as we read it, he kind of he tells us in, in verse seven and eight why why it's important that we don't love our own comfort. One. We didn't bring anything into this world, and there's nothing that's coming with us. And so this is an, an, an Old Testament idea. Job brings this out. You know what? I've gained all these things. I've lost all these things, but I came in naked. I'm going to go out naked. It, it's okay. It's not staying with me, and so I don't hold on to these things. I don't treasure these things. And then verse 8, Paul is bringing out Jesus' idea of Matthew chapter 6, that he says, but with food and clothing, with these we will be content. In other words, these are the basic necessities of life, food and clothing, and God's going to supply these things, and so be content with that. Now, that's troubling for us. I mean, verse 8 is a good time where if we could add to the text, wouldn't we? Well, that's a nice start, Paul. Food, clothing. Can I be more specific in what type of food? You know, steak, fruits, vegetables, um, Seafood, clothing, 
well, just the newest styles, you know, that, that, that's good. But then we say, well, you know, cars weren't invented then, so Paul must have, would have included cars here. And if we're going to have cars, well, we might as well have a nice car, be comfortable. And he doesn't even talk about houses. That's a major oversight, Paul. You know? There's nothing wrong with having a little bit of fun every once in a while, right? Pastor, I mean, you're just not going to be a total kill drive. We can have a boat. You know, we can, we can, you know, all these. And so we wanted to add to this, don't we? But he, I can't add to it. He says, we'll have food and clothing with these. We will be content. Paul said at Philippians 4, 11 through 13, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We often quote Philippians 4.13 and we talk about how we're some major physical and uh, challenge. And we think, man, God can give me strength and, and I can run this race. I can do this feat. But Paul was talking about being content. He's talking about learning to live without. We don't want to apply that verse then do we not only is it to learn to live without it's to learn to live with because sometimes the hardest challenge is not living without but living with and still maintaining contentment when things and riches come into our life nice things come into our life we hit the jackpot then it's hard isn't it to keep our mind set on things let me ask you this question would jesus play the lottery Would, would Jesus see a, a commercial, a banner at the, the store somewhere and says, win 10000 now, our chance to win $252 million? Would Jesus see that and think, I have a desire for that. I, I want that. What would it have to happen in his heart and life for him to have a desire for 10,000 or 252 million or whatever the latest may be? You say, well, pastor, what's the problem? I mean, it's just a few bucks. Hey, nothing lost. Well, a couple things. One, whose few bucks is it? Is it your money or is it a trust fund that belongs to God? And the second is not the question of just a few bucks, but what is the desire of your heart? Is there something where we say, man, if I had that, my life would be better. I would then have happiness. I could then have joy. And you would say to me, well, pastor, if I had all that money, just think of all the good things I could do for the church. I'm like, you know what? Here's a lesson I've learned, and I keep telling myself this lesson because I have to. God pays my salary. God pays your salary. Green Pines is used by the Lord to pay my salary. 
But ultimately, Green Pines doesn't pay my salary. God pays my salary. And he pays your salary. And so as to understand, God, if he wants it done, will supply it. He will supply it. I don't need the lottery. And I'm not just picking a lottery. I'm just picking on what the lottery represents, i.e. love of money. If I just have that, life is better. So let me take you to the last danger to beware that's very closely akin to beware of loving your own comfort. But it has, I think, more general. Beware of loving your own wealth. We read this in verse 9 and 10, and I think he narrows it a little bit or broadens it. Beware of loving your own wealth. But, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And note, it's not all evil, but all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Beware of loving your own wealth. Uh, some of you remember Homer's Odyssey. Um, there's this scene there where uh, there's these creatures uh, that are beautiful women mixed with kind of a mermaid, mermaid type thing where they sing beautifully. And if a man would hear their song, that it would just bring them in a trance and they no longer think straight and they, they steer their ships into rocks, the sirens' songs, where if you listen, you will destroy yourself. And so main character Odysseus is, is thinking, I, I want to hear these songs, but I don't want to crash into the rocks. And so he has his crew tie himself to a mast and says, whatever I say, do not let me go from this. Tie me tighter. And, and so as he listens to the entrancing song, he's saying, let me go, let me go. And the crew does not. And they go right by. Sometimes we look at life like that and we think, you know, this thing of riches, this thing of wealth, the thing of comfort or our own reputation and, and the next thing that comes in our life. It's kind of like these siren songs. They're always singing to us. And, and our job is to tie ourselves to a mass and just say, no, I will not listen to that. I will not listen to that. I will not love money. I will not love money. And as we tell ourselves, well, we will not love money. We only love money more. Later on, there was another uh, book written, a rewrite of Homer's Odyssey, of um, uh, Argon, Argonautica. And in this one, the main character uh, is going by these sirens again and, and hearing the siren song. And so the strategy was different. There's a character named Orpheus who came and and was a part of the crew. And, and the thing about Orpheus was that he could play beautiful music. It brought his heart. And as the siren song began, this one started playing the song of beauty. And it was so beautiful, so more entrancing, that it took the crew away from the siren songs to listen to this beautiful music. Listen, this is what we believe as 
followers of Jesus Christ. It is not that that the, the wealth song, the rich song, the individual right song, the comfort song is not so bad. It is a beautiful thing, but it's that we have something more beautiful. It's interesting how Scripture comes along and Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6 says, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How is it that the love of money and, and to refuse the love of money and being content is paired with, in verse, uh, the next phrase, paired with the fact that God said he'll never leave us nor forsake us. It is that we find God's presence more beautiful, more trancing, more powerful, more satisfying than the love of money. So we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Remember Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not lack. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. You comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How many times do we quote that we have that on our wall, but all at the same time we're saying, you know what, I love money though, I love wealth, I love comfort. We disgrace the gospel of Christ when we love wealth, when we love comfort, when we love our reputation, when we love our individual rights over the gospel of Jesus Christ. Society knows what it is to love money. No big deal. They know what that is. They know what it is to love comfort. They know what it is to love reputation. They know what it is to love their individual rights. That's why it's so rare and it stands out so much when someone comes along and gleefully lays down their individual rights to willingly allow their reputation to be ruined, to gladly take on discomfort, to think nothing of of having wealth dispersed. When society in America sees a person doing that lovingly, joyfully, gladly, out of the love of Jesus Christ, that is called witnessing. That's witnessing. To proclaim that Jesus is great. When that doesn't happen, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with pains. Notice what it says before that, verse 9. They fall into temptation. They start coveting wrong objects. And they, they get into a snare. And it's like they're entangled like animals in a trap. And now this trap leads to an ocean of sin. It says into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. This is why it's so important for us as a church to be generous. Not, not because it's a good thing or it's good for the name of Green Pines. That's not it at all. We are generous. We want to be good. We want to be a blessing to people. We want to have opportunity for us to give of our wealth to 
keep the love of Christ central in our life. For some time, there's often some criticism every once in a while of, of just a, a conviction I have that churches really shouldn't be engaged in fundraising. I don't mind us fundraising for people, for a person, to help them out. But to fundraise for our church, several problems, one of which is giving is so critical for the salvation of our belief, of, of us as a church. It is critical for the love of God that we don't love money, and giving is the primary tool that we have. And so I don't want anything to undermine giving. It's not because I'm just some weird guy. Maybe. But it's about learning the love of God. And the greatest problem in America we have is that we love money. And as a church, we don't want to undermine that. Several other reasons, one of which we want it to be glorifying to God. Fundraising often is glorifying to whoever who does the most work. Third, we want to know that it's of God and that God's moving in our hearts to go in a direction, not just because we've got some pretty slick fundraising capabilities, to to acknowledge the Spirit of God at work in our life. As we read this, it tells us these desires to watch out for. But what's implied? What's implied when he says, you know, serve well your master, that nothing hurts the name of Christ. What's, what's implied as we, we read this? You know, don't be so conceited and, and make everything about you and cause all these problems. What's, what's implied about that? What's implied when he says, uh, you know what, watch out for gain. Make sure there's contentment in your life. What, what's implied when he says... Don't love money. You know what's implied? Love God. Love Jesus. Take joy in Him. Gladly surrender these things. Because Jesus is satisfying. To say, you took my rights, but you didn't take my Jesus. To to say, you ruined my reputation. I am looked down upon. But he didn't take Jesus. You took comfort away from me. You took money away from me. But you can't take Jesus. Sometimes I wonder as a church in America, would it be good for rights to be taken away from our church, property be taken from our church? reputation to be taken from our church if it helps us to focus on Jesus. Fortunately, we're not there yet. So don't don't wait till someone makes you do it. Love Jesus. Jesus died. He died and his individual rights were surrendered. He died and his physical Life was taken. He died and his reputation was absolutely ruined. Died a terrorist death. 
He died and his wealth was removed. So that you might be rich. So that you might have the reputation of a child of God. So that you might instead of death, have life. So that you might not love silly, transient things that come and go. But that you might love the eternal one. That's what Jesus has done. And so let me ask you. Do you love Jesus? Is he your shepherd? Is there contentment in your life because of the presence of Jesus Christ? Church, do we believe that there is a living God among us? Do we believe that we're God's family? That this is his place? Do we believe that we're a pillar of truth? That it is ours to put truth out into the community? Do we believe these things? Then we're going to watch out. For our own reputation. We're going to watch out for loving that. We're going to watch out for loving our rights. Watch out for loving wealth and comfort. And we're going to watch for Jesus. Watch for the living God among us. Let's pray.